Well, in the book, Living in Light of Inextinguishable Hope, the authors write these words. We probably all heard this statement that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But then the realities of life press in relentlessly. There's sickness, pain, broken relationships, abuse, shattered dreams, temptation, sin, and death. So where is this wonderful plan for my life? What on earth is God up to? When we explore what God is up to in our lives, we discover that his good plan is not a plan for our ease and comfort, but rather a plan for our death and resurrection. Dying to our sin and to our old self and rising to a new life in him, he, leaves you and me, he loves you and me too much to leave us as we are, unchanged. This process is often hard and painful, as Joseph discovered, and the pathway along which you walk may be similarly confusing and disorienting. Yet along that difficult pathway, Joseph found that the Lord was with him, even when he felt most abandoned and alone. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible today to Genesis chapter 39. And as we look at Genesis 39, we're going to see that phrase, the Lord was with him four different times, as well as numerous references to how God was at work in and through the life of Joseph. Now, when we left off last time, if you were here last week, you'll recall that we were in Genesis chapter 37. We're going to jump over Genesis chapter 38. There's an interesting side note that happens with Judah, one of Joseph's brothers. It really stands in stark contrast today to what we will see in Joseph's life and how he handles the temptation. But I want to stay with the story of Joseph today. So we're picking up in chapter 39. And as we pick up in chapter 39, verses 1 through 6, tell us Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's arrived in Egypt, and this is what we read. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, and he put him in charge. It came about that from that time on he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. And so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and, and with him. He did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. And then we read, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, as we talked about last time, if you look at Genesis chapter 37, verse 36, we saw that word meanwhile there. As Joseph was in the, the darkness of the previous pit where his brothers had thrown him, where everything looked like it was falling apart, we saw that God wrote the word meanwhile across the story to say, I'm not yet done writing this story. And in those times we talked about where we feel abandoned or in the dark as to what God is happening, we need to remember to write meanwhile across our life. And it's here that we see God was not yet done with Joseph. He hadn't abandoned him. He, he, it says the Lord was with him. Just because life is hard or isn't turning out the way that we might hope, it doesn't mean that God is against us or that his plan for our life has been derailed. 
It may be that just as we're looking at in the life of Joseph, God is at work with you in the midst of some darkness, in the midst of some bondage. Here, here he is in Egypt. He's facing these hard times. But as we talked about last time, God uses these hard times in our lives. Sometimes it's for the benefit of others. And we see that clearly. As here is this high official in Pharaoh's court, this Egyptian officer, who it says he sees what God is doing in and through the life of Joseph. And he recognizes that the hand of God is on this young man. Some of you here are going through hard things. Joseph had a painful sidetrack, and we see one of the reasons for it is that God wanted others like Potiphar, this Egyptian official, to see how God could be at work. I've talked with countless individuals who have suffered through some type of sickness, and they've, they've said, you know, Roger, as I've walked through this, as I've been in the cancer uh, treatment areas receiving my chemo, and there are others around me that are hopeless, they say, you know, one of the things that I see God doing is just using me as a witness to others as other patients, as doctors, as nurses, watch the way that I'm walking through it. And, and they say to me, why, why are you different? What's going on? And, and it gives them an opportunity to witness about their faith in Christ. And others sometimes see that the hand of God is upon you, even in the very hard situations. Sometimes the things that happen in our life are to prepare us for what is to come. Remember that Joseph, when we left off last time, was a 17-year-old uh, favored and pampered son who had been at the pinnacle of his father's house. He had been excused from manual labor. He was, he was a guy who had everything, and yet he was, he was very young. He was very naive. He needed God to be at work in his life. He was in a rural setting in a different culture, and suddenly he finds himself in the capital city of Egypt, in the palace, uh, in, in the 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 home of the bodyguard of the palace, the guy who would be in Pharaoh's presence daily. And it was there that Joseph learned how to read hieroglyphics. It was there that he learned the language of the land, the culture. He learned how to interact with the officials that one day he would be standing among in the, the palace among Pharaoh. And so God was using this where he was stripped of everything he knows as he shipped off to this, this foreign land. It was there that God was preparing him. Now, as master, we read as Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard. This is the guy who was the right-hand man to the king. He was the guy that was there who was the food taster. He was the one that protected the king. He was the one that was in his presence. He was in the most inner circle of trust. Potiphar was a man who had earned trust. And we see this 17-year-old slave has earned the trust of a man who was trusted by others. Now, how did that happen? How did this young foreign slave move up the ranks and become the personal attendant to the one who is the personal bodyguard to Pharaoh? Well, we see it was by being faithful when he could have done the opposite. This theme of Joseph's faithfulness, in spite of the temptations that he faces, is the other thread that is woven throughout this chapter. The, the main thread is that the Lord was with Joseph. And the other thread that is interwoven all throughout this chapter is how Joseph was faithful in spite of all the temptations that he faced. The first temptation we see is right here. Jo it's how Joseph handles things when, when life is unfair. I mean, remember, Joseph had been the guy that was at the top of the totem pole in his family structure. And now he finds himself at the very bottom. He's been thrown into a pool of other servants. He's been assigned the most menial of tasks that there are. 
And Joseph is faced with a choice. He could have pouted. He could have done shoddy work. He could have said, look, this is unfair to me. This is a defining moment in the life of this young man. Whether Joseph knows it or not, he's being faced with a very significant temptation as it relates to power. This temptation that comes with power can include how we get it or how we use it. It also relates to how we respond to it when we are not the one in power. Some of you here this morning are facing situations very similar to Joseph's. You may be a person who is used to being at the top of the totem pole. You were in a position of power. You were a person that everybody came to for decisions. You were the, the, the one that uh, was directing others. And suddenly you find yourself going from the top to the bottom. It could have been a job loss. It could have been that you retired. It could be that you've uh, been uprooted and moved to a new city. You're here in San Antonio. Uh, Your kids who were uh, the top person in their teams or in their school structure suddenly find themselves here in a new environment where nobody knows who they are and they're starting over. And in those moments, we have a choice to make. Will we mope around? Will we give a half-hearted effort? Will we let everybody know how unfair life is, that we should be the one who is at the top, the one making the decisions? Or will we be faithful? Will we say, God, I don't fully grasp what you're doing, but you've put me here, and I'm at the bottom, but I'm going to be faithful here at the bottom. I'm going to do what I can where I am, and I'm going to leave the rest up to you. Can I share a secret with you? If you find yourself at the bottom and you don't like it, the best way to stay there is to let everybody know. To mope around, to give a half-hearted effort, to let everybody know that you should really be the one at the top. But if you want to move up, show up on time for work, even early. Give it your best effort. Be hardworking and faithful. Look for ways to go above and beyond what is required, and people will notice. And you'll begin to be moved up. Now, let me mention this important point as well. Whether or not anybody else is watching you, God is. We need to remember that when we work, when we do things, it is for the Lord ultimately. It's not for our employer. They're simply the beneficiary of what we're doing. Colossians 3.23 tells us, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. When we work hard, we're not only honoring our employer, which we should do, but we're ultimately honoring God. As Joseph is faithful in the little things, we see that he begins to move up. He moves up to bigger and bigger things and is ultimately elevated to the manager over all of Potiphar's home. The scripture tell us when we are faithful in the little things, we will be entrusted with more. And we see this happening in the life of Joseph. Now, as we're talking about this temptation as it relates to power, there's there's a flip side to it. Thomas Carlyle, who was a Scottish essayist, said this, Adversity is sometimes hard on a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred men who can stand adversity. Do you understand what he's saying? Those who are tested with power, those who are tested with prosperity, often fall more than those who go through hardship. The temptations that accompany prosperity or come with positions of power are sometimes subtle, but they are just as dangerous. We can depend less and less on God, or we can begin to believe our own press, that we are as important as we think we are, and that other people are simply there to make our life easier. 
One of the dangers of power is we start to treat others as less important. We see them as pawns to meet our wants or our needs. And this is what we see happening with Potiphar's wife. Here we see Joseph, a young man who is at the bottom of the totem pole moving up. But there is the wife of Potiphar who was at the top. She had a position of power. She had a position in that home. And as she notices Joseph, verse 6 said he is handsome in form and appearance. And this woman did not miss this. Look at what happens in verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Now, as we read this, the Hebrew text literally reads, sex now. This isn't an invitation. This is a command. I see you. You're desirable. You're, at this point, Joseph is probably a young man in his 20s. He's good looking. He's well built. And she looks at him and she says, sex now. This is an area of temptation that we need to look at in our own life. You're saying, well, Roger, I don't run around commanding people sex now. Well, no, but what you may, may need to look at in your life is this. If you're somebody who's in a position of power, what do you do with it? If you're a person who's big and strong, do you bully other people? Or do you use your status and your size in order to protect those who are smaller than you? If we're in a place of influence, do, do we use what we have to serve others or are we self-serving? If, if you're somebody who is over others, do you view them as disposable pawns that are there simply to advance your agenda? Or do you ask yourself, how can I advance this person's career? How can I give them opportunities to look good, to move up in the organization? How can I uh, advance their agenda over mine? In Matthew chapter 20 and verses 25 through 28, Jesus Christ told us this. It says, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And he said that, you know, the ruler of the Gentiles lorded over them. That is those that are under them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant. And whoever wishes first to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You recall that Jesus demonstrated what this looks like as he washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13 and verses 13 and following. Uh, after he washed their feet while the disciples were all arguing about which one of them would be the greatest, Jesus said this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. You see, as Christians, God has given us a very clear set of instructions, hasn't he? And how those of us who have been given a position of power or influence are to use it to serve others, not to be self-served. He's given us the ultimate model, which was Christ himself. As he said, I did this for you and you are now to do it to others. But we see Potiphar's wife was living according to the world in her own selfish desires. As she calls on Joseph to join her in this, this fallen system, verses 8 through 9 tell us this. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. 
And he has put me over all that he owns. All that he owns is in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, remember, he's a red-blooded young man in his early 20s. And here's a desperate housewife who says, sex now. And Joseph is faced with a choice. He, he could have easily said, you know, I've got desires too, and you're a beautiful woman, and why not? But he tells us why not. He says, my master trusts me. How could I betray the trust of my master? And he says, more importantly, how could I go against what God wants? How could I betray God? How could I do this, this evil What he does is he points to God and he says, this is the true north in my life. As as he looks at his life, he says, there are multiple options here. There are desires of my flesh that are clouding my thinking and what I should do. And he says, "As as I'm faced with this, it tells us he looks to God and he says, this is where I get my guidance. He says, this is my compass. This is my true north. I look up to God and what he tells me I should be doing. In that time where there was this fog of thinking, as as there were all these things swirling around him, as Joseph said, it would be so easy for me to get lost, he looks up to God. And he says, this is what gives me direction in my life. I learned how to scuba dive when I was back in college. And one of the things they taught you is that if you're deep diving and and you're in a position, sometimes you're in in a dark area where you really get lost and you don't know which way is up. And it's very easy at that moment when you're panicking and disoriented to lose your way. And they said, what you need to do in that moment is just stop, calm yourself for a moment, and then blow a little bit of bubbles through your regulator. And then put your hand above your mouth to see where the bubbles are, because the bubbles are always going to go up. And that tells you the way that you're to swim. There are people that have literally drowned in water they could stand up in because they get so disoriented, they panic and they swim sideways instead of going up. And so what you're told is in that moment where everything is swirling around you and you've lost your way, reorient yourself and look for your true north, so to speak. Any of you who are pilots have been taught this as well. They, they tell you that if you're in the cockpit and you're disoriented, what are you to trust? Your feelings? The situation or are you to look at your instruments because they're always going to point you the right direction to show you which way is up instead of down. And this is Joseph. He orients himself as he's in this tempting situation. And as he does so, he goes on to say what God says about this situation. He says, look, this isn't some harmless roll in the hay where you get what you want and I get my needs met. What he says is this is sin. He calls it what it is. This is sin. And he says, it will hurt my relationship with my master. It will hurt my relationship with my Lord. And friends, whether you know it or not, it will hurt yourself. As we look at what the scriptures tell us about sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us this, flee immorality. There's a command for us. Flee immorality. But then it says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, we really don't like that verse, do we? 
Because what it tells us is sexual sin is different than any other sin. Now, it's not that this is any worse than anything. The Bible is very clear that sin is sin. Even the smallest thing like lying is as bad as any other sin. But when it says that this sin is different, what it's telling us is that it has an impact on our soul. Society wants to tell us that, look, hooking up is a harmless thing. It's, it's no big deal. Just go out and do it. And yet what God says is when you do these things, you hurt yourself. Because what you're doing is you're giving away a very part of yourself. In our most honest moments, if we were to really sit down and, and ask ourselves what we give away when we engage in something like sex outside of marriage, we know the honest truth. That we're giving away a part of ourselves. It's something God created. It is something God gave us to be shared within the intimacy of a husband and a wife relationship in a committed, loving home where there's safety and where it belongs. Now, the world tells us, look, our enemy, Satan, is called what? The father of lies. And what the world tells us, what our enemy says is, you know, God's just a prude. There's this good thing out there that he doesn't want you to have. How unfair is God? Now, may I remind you of something, friends? Who created sex? God did. God is the one who made it. God is the one who said, this is good. And he says, I want you to enjoy it. As you read the Song of Solomon, it says in, in Song of Solomon 5.1, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Translation, go for it. Enjoy it. Have all you want. But as you look at the context, it's within the context that God gave it to us with a husband and a wife in a committed relationship. Is God withholding something good? No. He's saying, I gave you this and I want you to enjoy it in the context in which I gave it to you. Because what the world doesn't tell us is there are all these consequences that come when we corrupt what God has given to us. When we take it, take it outside of his design, it's disastrous. It, it brings all kinds of hurt and consequences. It can be sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, broken hearts, broken trust. And the list goes on. And this is what Joseph is saying as he calls it what it is. He says, this is sin. And he says, here are the consequences that come with this sin. In those times that you're tempted, do what Joseph does here. The first thing you need to do is stop and orient yourself and say, what does God's word say about this? And then ask yourself, why is God saying these things about it? Sit down and, and make a list of the consequences and the benefits that come with the choice you're about to make. Now, some of these things we have to pre-decide in that moment. It's not time to pull out a sheet and say, hold on a second. I need to go through this. It's too late at that moment. So what we do is we pre-decide. We make those decisions in advance. And as you list the things that you will gain, short-term pleasure, okay, that's about it. And then you list the consequences that can come. Loss of a relationship, loss of trust, broken relationship with the person you love, your spouse. Your relationship with God is hurt. There could be further consequences. In, in my position as a pastor of a church, I look through and I say, what could it do to the body of Christ, to the testimony of the Lord? I could lose my job, and I should. I can lose the respect of my wife and my kids. 
Even if my wife loved me enough to forgive me and walk through the hard thing, I will have damaged my relationship with her. You just go down and you start listing all the things you will lose. And pretty quickly you say, you know, this isn't worth it. And that's what Joseph does here. He says, I will lose the trust of my master. I will hurt my relationship with the Lord. And as we've already seen, God says we will hurt ourselves as we go through this. So Joseph says no. But we see that Potiphar's wife isn't a woman to take no. In verse 10, it tells us she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. Now, day after day, she would approach him. You know, this is just like the culture in which we live, isn't it? We can't go through a day where we are not bombarded with sexual temptation. It's on billboards on the side of the road. It's the pop-up ads that show up on our computer, on our iPhones, on our PDAs. There's this daily temptation to give in to sexual temptation. We go to school or work where our classmates, or our coworkers are talking about their latest escapades and they're saying, why aren't you doing this? And, and we're bombarded daily. Now, we can't completely shut ourselves off from the temptations around us, but we can do as Joseph did. We're told here that he does things to limit his exposure to Potiphar's wife. He makes sure he's not in the home alone with her. He makes sure that he's, he's uh, outside of her, her influence. He puts up safeguards to never be with her. We can do this by putting filtering software on our computer, our tablets, our phones, if there's someone who's, who's a, a tempting relationship in your life, somebody you flirt with or they flirt with you or per, people you know are going to be, you know, constantly talking about the stuff they're doing, the book of Proverbs tells us to avoid bad company. And so find ways to avoid that person or that situation. Now, as Christians, we're not to- called to go toe-to-toe with temptation. Rather, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, 10, uh, 6, 16, we're told to flee temptation, to get away from it. If you think you can go toe-to-toe with temptation and, and win, it's like walking a lion on a leash. There's a day it's going to turn around and going to eat you. He says, get away from it. And this is what Joseph does in verses 11 through 12. Now, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. Joseph, as we said, has already been putting up safeguards, but apparently she sends all the servants away. She sets a trap for him. And it says none of the men were in the household. None of the men of the household were inside. And she caught him by his garment. And she said, lie with me. Remember that sex now. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. You know, there's a saying that we can't keep the birds of the air from flying over our head, but we can't keep them from nesting in our hair. And Joseph is one who finds himself in a situation he couldn't control. He's alone in the house. She pins him against a wall. She literally grabs his clothing, starts to take it off. And Joseph is left with a a desperate situation with a desperate housewife, which is simply to flee, to flee naked, running out of the house, leaving his clothes in her hand. The robe that he was wearing, she rips it off him and he runs out of the house. Now it's been said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And here we see what it looks like because verses 13 through 20 tell us when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household. She calls everybody inside. Hey, look, see, 
See, he has brought this Hebrew to us. She's talking about her husband. To make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me and I screamed. She says, you know, you guys are all Egyptians. And doesn't it make you mad that this Hebrew slave has been promoted above you by my husband? Look what he did. She's slandering him. She's, she's playing on the anger of others. And she says, when I screamed, when, when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until her master came home. I mean, she's there in her bedroom, laying on the bed, looking at the robe and getting madder and madder each moment. As she stares at his, his empty clothes. Then she spoke to him. This is Potiphar. He's come home. She said, this Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And I raised my voice and I screamed. And he left his garment beside me and fled outside. You know, I'm sure she yelled at the top of her lungs at that moment. But it wasn't one of, of uh, rape. It was one of rage. How dare you, a slave, reject me? All of this. How dare you? She screams in rage at the thought of being spurned. Now here's Potiphar. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which we spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. We'll talk about that in a moment. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Now, the text doesn't directly say this, but I want you to think about it for a moment. You remember who Potiphar is? Potiphar is the captain of the bodyguard. He's the professional soldier. He, part of his role in the king's administration is to be the chief executioner. He's the guy that kills all the people that have committed crimes, capital crimes against now, he walks in from work. He's probably been called home. The men sent word to the palace. You need to come home right now. Something's happened at home. He walks in. He's all armored up. He's in his uniform. He's been there protecting Pharaoh. He's still got his sword strapped to his side. He walks into the bedroom, and there's his wife, the drama queen. She's laid out on the bed. Her mascara's running. She's been crying. She's holding the clothes, and she says, look what he did. Joseph, the one you trust he tried to violate me. He violated your trust. Here's the proof. Now, Potiphar, if he really believed that his wife had been, there had been an attempted rape against his wife by a slave, what do you think he would have done? He would have walked right out in the courtyard and whipped out that sword, and it would have been the end of Joseph's life. He didn't believe his wife. He knows his wife. He knows Joseph. He's not blind. He's watched what's been going on. But he's between a rock and a hard place because this is his wife. If he says, honey, you're lying, and he takes the word of the slave over his wife, what, what does the rest of that relationship look like? When it says that his anger burns, you know what he was mad about? He's got to get rid of his best and most trusted slave, the guy that he worries about nothing in the house. And he says, great, because of your sin, honey, he doesn't say it out loud, but because of what you're doing, I now have to punish an innocent man. I now have to lose the guy that I trust most. He didn't kill Joseph. He does the only thing he could do. He throws him into prison. He throws him into jail. Now, notice it's, a, it's, a, it's not just any jail. It's the king's dungeon. 
You know, it may have even been in the courtyard under his own home. Remember, he's the guy that oversees all the, the things that are going on. But Joseph ends up in a prison, a prison that we're going to see next time in chapter 40 that is a very important place that Joseph needed to be to bring about the next divine appointment where he would put him in contact with the person that will be needed to put Joseph's name before Pharaoh in order to promote Joseph up out of the pit and into the palace. But that's for next time. Remember that God was at work. He was weaving the story together. God was with Joseph. Now, as we talked about last week, sometimes things from our side of the story don't make any sense. You know, if I had been writing this story, you know what I would have had? Joseph was such a great guy that God rewarded him and he was promoted up by being given his freedom, set free from being a slave. And, he, you know, he had all these great things. Isn't that how you would write the story? But suddenly everything looks like it's falling apart. Joseph, the guy who had worked up from the bottom of the totem pole to the top of the totem pole, suddenly goes back to the pit. He finds himself in a deep, dark dungeon in the pit again. But in the darkness of that moment, look at the glimmer of hope that God gives to us in verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And he gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were there in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. The story is told about a, a farmer who had a... a an old mule, and this mule was walking through the field one day, and he fell into a deep hole. It was an abandoned well that had never been covered over, and as, as this donkey fell into the pit, he dropped down, you know, quite a distance. He's at the bottom, and as the animal hit bottom, he, he you know, stood up. He wasn't really injured, but it was, it was going to be very hard to get this animal out of the pit. The farmer could hear his donkey brain. Uh, this thing was in distress and he comes out and he gets a, a lantern and he looks and he looks way down in the deep hole and he goes, there's no way I can get this thing out. My, my animal is old. If we could figure out a way to rescue him, uh, in all likelihood, he, he may not survive the rescue attempt. And he said, you know, the most merciful thing we can do is to, to end this donkey's life so that it doesn't suffer for days, maybe weeks before it dies. And beyond that, this, this open hole, it's, it's a danger. Somebody else is going to fall in it. So we need to cover it over. And so the farmer calls all his friends together and he says, look, we, we need to fill this hole in. And he didn't have the heart to, to shoot his donkey. So he said, Let, let's just shovel dirt on top of it. And, and very quickly, this, this animal, you know, will be put out of its misery. And so the farmer and all his friends start shoveling dirt down into the hole. Now, as, as the loads of dirt are thrown down, the shovelfuls would land on the donkey's back and it would, it would cry out and bray again. And what are you doing? And it was, it was scared and in distress. And, but after a little while, the, the donkey quit calling out. And the farmer thought, well, gosh, is it, is it already been covered up enough that it's, it's died? And, and so he gets his lantern and he, he looks down in the hole again as people are still shoveling dirt in and he was amazed at what he saw. 
Because as each shovel full of dirt was thrown into the hole and it landed on the donkey's back, what he noticed is the donkey would shake it off and then he'd step up on top of the load of dirt that had just been thrown in. And as more and more dirt was thrown in, he kept shaking it off and stepping up, shaking it off and stepping up. And over a period of time, the donkey was able to to step up and step up to the point that they could then see the donkey. And eventually they got it high enough to where the donkey was able to step up out of the hole and walk off free. You know, as we look at the situation here with Joseph, as we look at his story, it would have been easy for him just to lie down in the hole and to get buried under it and say, God, I'm done. I, I, I don't know what you're doing, but you know, life is unfair. I, I've, I've been here before. I was in the pit where my brothers stripped me of my robe. They threw me in this hole and I thought I was going to die. And I was faithful, God. I, I, I lived for you. I, I worked hard where I was. I, I, I said no to what most men would have said yes to. And what did it get me? I'm, I'm back in the hole with people throwing stuff on me. I'm getting piled on, piled on. I've done all I can to honor you, God. And what has it gotten me? Do any of you know how that feels? Have any of you tried to honor God in your life? Maybe at work, you've tried to work hard. You've tried to tell the truth. And what did it get you? It didn't get you promoted. It got you sidetracked or maybe even fired. Does that happen to anybody here? You don't have to raise your hand, but just think about it. Some of you here are saying, you know, that that health, wealth, and prosperity stuff doesn't work. That's not what this message is about, friends. This isn't about just shake it off and, you know, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but I'm not telling you to go sing her song and just life is going to be good. That's not what this is. Because remember, as we opened, we saw that sometimes the way that God works in our life is to make things really hard. Some of you say, you know, Roger, I play by the rules. And it didn't get me the trophy. It got me a last place finish while the people who cheated got the trophy or got the promotion. As we try to live our lives as Joseph did, you know, what may happen is we may lose somebody that we thought loved us. And I stress thought loved us. Because as we talked about last time, sometimes they'll tell you, if you really love me, you'll sleep with me. And and here's a person where you said, you know, God, I did what you said. I tried to honor you. And what did it get me? I lost this person. I lost what the world offered. It would have been better if I just lived my life that way instead of trying to live for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may I tell you something? Even if you were the only one who is not doing it, then don't do it. Do what God says. Be the person that God wants us to be. Obedience does not always lead to success in this world. In fact, the Bible promises us this. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that? If you're going to live for the Lord, you know how the world will respond? With persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want you to remember that as believers, that our rewards are not here on earth. There can be rewards that God gives us to, gives to us for faithfulness while we're living here. 
But our rewards ultimately come in heaven, in eternity. And if you're living life today, if you're watching the news and saying, Roger, the world is a mess. I see what's happening with the Islamic State. I see the suffering that is happening. I see all the random stuff. I know people who are living for God and it's gotten them thrown in a pit rather than promoted. And you're wondering, what is going on? Does God really know what is going on? The answer is yes. If you want to know how the story ends, you know, we have the advantage in reading Joseph's story to read ahead and see what happens. And as believers in Christ, we get to read ahead too to see what happens. You can turn to the very last chapter in the Bible, to the second to the last verse in the entirety of God's revealed word to us. And in Revelation twenty-two twenty, it tells us this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ will set all things right. And what he says to us who are living in this world where it makes no sense to us, he says the story is not done being written yet. But if you want to peek ahead to see what happens, as believers, we are on the winning side. We win in the end. God says, I am coming back and I will make all things right. When the things in our life make no sense to us, God says, look to the true north. And our true north is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what it does is it points us to who God is and what God is doing. You want to talk about a story that made no sense? It's right there. Who in the world would ever have thought that God who created the world, God who made all of us, when he saw our sin, when he saw what we did when we were in rebellion and running from him, the world could think of many ways to write the story, like lightning came down from heaven and smote this person and punished this person and on. But what did God say? God said, I love you so much, I'm willing to leave my throne in heaven to come to earth, to walk among the muck and the mire, the mess that man and women have made of, mankind has made of this world. And he says, I walked among you. And I, the creator, became a part of the creation. And I took your place and my place. And he said, and I went to the cross and I allowed myself to be beaten and bloodied and mocked and spit upon and stripped naked and to be crucified, to die, to die to pay the penalty of death. Because without me doing this, all of us would be lost. We would be separated from God for all eternity. And what he said is, I love you too much to leave you like you are. And he took our place. That cross is our true north. It points us to God and how much he loved us. We're willing to trust God for eternity. So why are we not willing to trust him for today or tomorrow or the situation we find ourselves in? You know, Joseph was a young man who had been faithful and all it seemed to get him was more heartache and more dirt thrown upon him. But friends, at this point, Joseph was in the waiting room the story wasn't done being written. God was still at work. And we can read ahead and we can see that what will happen, that there is a moment coming where God will elevate him. These things are being used as stepping stones to get him to the point where he's going to step out of that dark pit and into the palace. And as Joseph steps into the palace, 
guess who's going to be there now guarding Joseph as the prime minister in Egypt? Potiphar. You see, Joseph doesn't just get exonerated and released and gets to go back to Potiphar's house as the servant, but he gets promoted to the second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. He's the prime minister. He's the guy that is now there in the palace and Potiphar is now guarding his former servant. It's a story that we can't even imagine being written. It's a way that Joseph never could see God elevating him. Things didn't make sense to him where he had to go down to go up. And yet that's the story of the Bible. Jesus says, do you want to be first? Then become a slave. For Jesus, there couldn't have been the crown without the cross. And in our lives, sometimes God says, there, there is a, a cross before the crown. And are you willing to hold on to me? Are you willing to, to walk with me in the darkness and to trust me to know that your story is not yet being done, written by me? Again, if you need to know that everything turns out in the end, look at the back of the Bible where Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And our response is to be, yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you for the story of Joseph's life. For a young man who stood for you in a world that was falling apart and in a world when, where things were making no sense. We thank you, Lord, not just for the example of Joseph's life for us, but more importantly, for the example of your son, Jesus Christ the one who came to take my place and the place of everyone else here. I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here today that has not yet turned to you, Jesus, accepting you to be their savior, that today would be the day where they accept that great gift of new life. Father, for those of us who belong to you, who have given our lives to you, may you help us, Lord, to trust you, even in the times where things are making no sense to us, May we hold on to you. May we shake off what we're facing and step up, knowing, God, that you are at work and that your story is still being written in our life. May we be those who walk with you and cooperate with you in what you're trying to accomplish in and through our lives. So we commit our lives anew to you and ask that you would send us out to be your lighthouses in the darkness of the world in which we live. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.